forgive me if, I, if you've heard what I'm about to tell you. It's a little anecdote that happened to me years ago. I was, uh, uh, apart from the creator of life in those days, did not know him, um, had no idea you could know him in a personal way, so I was really lost and troubled as a result. Uh, in fact, desperate, and went from pillar to post looking for helps. Didn't know exactly what I was looking for, know where to find help. I had a friend who I hadn't seen in years and years. In desperation, I just took a shot in the dark. I called him because I needed a place to stay. That's what I told him. I asked him if he could provide for me a place to stay. I was just lost and in trouble. He said, yes. Uh, I live at a place in Pennsylvania, said he, with many others. It's a commune, he said. Uh, a yoga commune. He said, we're a together group of people who live on love. That's how he put it. I thought, that sounds good. Live on love. Okay. So I drove up to this place in the middle of who knows where in Pennsylvania and uh, found very interesting and unusual people. And I thought they found something I really needed because they had a very interesting glassy-eyed look. <laughs> I thought, I, I guess that's what you're supposed to look for. So I tried as hard as I could to get into what they were into. And I remember when I got there having a conversation with this friend of mine, and he said, Stuart, tell me your story. Tell me what events led up to you being here. And I did, and he listened, and I remember he, he looked uh, right in, at me. He was undistracted the whole time, and I remember him nodding his head at times as if he could relate, as if he understood, as if he was sympathetic. And when I finished, I remember this was 30, 35 years ago, but I remember like it was yesterday. Uh, he put his arm around me and he said, wow, you really are going through an overwhelmingly tough time. That's all. And that's all I needed. A word, a look, and a touch even from an unlikely, unregenerated source. And I thought, wow, he's quite a sympathetic helper. But I needed another characteristic, and perhaps you identified this in your brief discussion. It's not just a sympathetic potential helper we need. We need someone who has the ability to help. And that's where this friend of mine, good guy, fell short. He couldn't help me where I hurt. He couldn't do for me what only Jesus could do. So my point tonight is to prove to you that Jesus is a better helper than all others. And I want to do this as we continue reflecting on the book of Hebrews, which we've termed for a good reason, the letter of better. And prior 
weeks we demonstrated, I hope, that Jesus is better than the prophets, better than the angels, better than other voices, better than all other men, better than all other relationships. And last week, we spoke of the unusual, somewhat uncomfortable topic of death, and I tried to make the point that as an alternative to death, Jesus is far better than death. And tonight, I want to demonstrate to you through a few verses in the letter of better, Hebrews, that Jesus is better than all other helpers. And to do this, let me direct your attention to Hebrews chapter 2, verse 16. Just a few verses is all it will take to make this point. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 16. It says, For assuredly he does not give help to angels, but he, that's the Lord Jesus, gives help to the descendant of Abraham. If the Lord Jesus came to give help to angels, he would have come as what? As an angel, but he did not. He came, though God, in the form of man because intent was to give help to us. I'm telling you, Jesus is a far better helper than any we could think of or imagine. No, his primary objective was not to come take on angelic form so as to help angels. Oh no, it says he came to give help to the descendant of Abraham. Why does the writer of Hebrews use that term? It's because he's writing to Hebrews. And Hebrews would connect with the term. That's what it's called, Hebrews, right? The book, I'm not making this up. That's what it says. The writer, a Hebrew, probably, is writing to Hebrews, certainly. And they would have understood the concept, descendant or seed of Abraham. It was them. And so the writer is essentially saying the Messiah, Jesus, did not come to be a helper of angels. He came to be a helper of you, descendants of Abraham, Jews. So does that leave you guys out? No, it does not. Let me read to you this marvelous verse in Galatians chapter 3, verse 29. And if you, if you belong to Christ... If you do, this is for you. If you belong to Christ, then, see it's an if-then proposition. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to promise. So the contrast being drawn here is not between Jew and Gentile, it's between angels and humans. The God-man the pre-existent one, he who has no beginning nor any end, this Lord Jesus, who was not a created being, in fact, he's the agent of creation, he came and took on the form, not of angels, he took on the form of humankind, seed of Abraham, in order to help us. In fact, specifically, he took on the form, frankly, of perhaps the most despised people group on earth then and increasingly today, Jews. Interesting to me that Almighty God stooped so low not only to become a human, but to become a Jewish human. I shared this the other day with someone 
calling himself a Christian who is quite appalled at the insinuation that Jesus was a Jew. That's interesting to me. Yeah, he's not Irish. I mean, I'm seed of Abraham. So anyway, so here's the, folks, we, uh, we were lost. I, I mentioned briefly my lostness, but all of us, apart from Christ, were lost. And our primary need uh, was to be redeemed. Who could do it? But the God-man, Jesus. To redeem humans, he, God, became human so as to die as a human for sinful humans. That's what he did. You tell me who else could do that. Tell me who else not only could do that, tell me who would do that. This Jesus could do, and this Jesus did do. He's a far better helper, don't you see, than any other could possibly be. And so to redeem us, he became like us. And so it says in the very next verse, 17, therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things. Some say Jesus was not in essence human. He simply appeared to be human. Those are people who don't know what they're talking about. He didn't only have the appearance of man. He became, in essence, a human being. And he experienced, as a result, in his body, human needs. And in his heart, human emotions. And in his mind, even human thoughts. I tell you, he was fully human, yet, with this very important exception, you know what it is? No sin. That is exactly right. No sin. He had no sin. Now, why did he do this? Why did he become like us in all things? Well, for two reasons, and here's the first in the very next part of verse 17. So that, he did this, so that he might become, notice, two things, a merciful and second, faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. Do you know as you read the Old Testament, you will be hard pressed to find compassion and mercy as a very common characteristic of the priests in the Old Testament. In fact, it was generally found wanting. Mostly, they did not connect with the people allotted to their charge. Mostly, they elevate the priests in the Old Testament. Mostly, they elevated themselves above the people who they were. They lorded it over them instead of serving them as they were called to do. So this characteristic, a compassionate, merciful high priest is rather foreign to the human priests of the Old Testament. But this is exactly who Jesus is, quite compassionate and merciful. Therefore, he's a far better helper, don't you see, than all others. He really suffered. You know this, don't you? He suffered as a human so as to be a merciful human high priest, sympathetic with the suffering all the rest of us go through. But he's not only merciful towards us, he is faithful towards the Father. I tell you, he's a perfect helper. You see, he's rightly 
positioned with regard to us. He's merciful. He's rightly positioned with regard to his father. He is faithful. Faithful meaning he was steadfast in doing all that the father required, even dying. Mm. Remember when he said, Father, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, nonetheless, not my will, but thy will. There was suffering in that cup and Jesus drank it because it was the Father's will. I got to tell you something. You could respect a helper who is not only merciful, but also possesses a faithful and reliable character. And that's who this Lord Jesus is and was. And the second reason why he became enfleshed like us in all respects, it says here, is to make, does your Bible say propitiation? That's a tough one. Holy moly. Propitiation for the sins of the people. So first he came to be like us so that we could know he's sympathetic. He could understand. You could run to Jesus and you never have to worry about him saying, I don't get you. What are you talking about? You know what you're going to get? Figuratively speaking, his sympathetic and compassionate head nodding as if to say, I know, I know. I shared your experience, yet without, yet without sin. Have you ever confided in someone, trusted your hurt heart to that person, poured it out only to find that person cannot relate to your plight? How do you feel? I'll tell you how you feel. You're going to be less prone to be quite that open again. But you can be this way with this Jesus because one of the reasons he came was to experience all that you and I do so that all of us could know he's a sympathetic high priest. But he also came, secondly, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Hebrew people knew one thing. You wouldn't dare to enter into the presence of Almighty God when the temple stood in Jerusalem on your own. You would do so under penalty of death. You had to go through the priest. The priest was the mediator between you and God. And the priest would offer sacrifices first for himself and on his behalf and then on your behalf. And that would make a way of entree into the presence of Almighty God. You couldn't come, if you will, empty-handed because your hands were laden with sin. They had to be cleansed in the blood of a sacrificed lamb. And the ministration of sacrifice had to be done by the high priest. And they were never done because of our manifold sins. They functioned around the clock so the Hebrews of the day knew you can't just usher into the presence of God. Who do you think you are? He's not your co-pilot. He's not the big guy upstairs. He's the most high God. He's Elohim. He's a consuming fire. Who do you think you are? So that much they knew. And Jesus came as a better high priest than all others who preceded him. Why? Because he didn't just mediate sacrifices for sin. He is the sacrifice for sin. And when he was offered, he said, it is finished, and he sat down. No more endless succession of the blood of bulls and goats. 
Oh no, the Lamb of God paid the penalty for our sin in full. And now there is one God and one mediate, one mediator between God and man. The man, Christ Jesus. He's a far better helper into the presence of God than any other pretender to the throne better than all other helpers. He, if this is a word, I'm not sure it is. He, but you'll get the idea. He propitiated God. You know what that means? It means what he did for us appeased God's anger towards us. <gasps> Many theologians today are repulsed by what I just said. I just insinuated God gets angry. They don't want to hear this. They want God to be the uh, cosmic flower child who grades on a curve, who is issued 10 suggestions, not commandments, whose holiness can be compromised, but it's not true. Now don't misunderstand, God's anger is not the impulsive outburst of emotion which you and I are subject to. When we talk about the outpouring of the wrath of God, it's his holy response to all that which is unholy. That's God's anger. And Jesus propitiated him. It's like a fragrant aroma going up, taken in by the nostrils of Almighty God, which soothes him and appeases his otherwise justifiable wrath, which should befall you and me. Jesus propitiated the anger of God. Jesus because of what he did, took away God's anger from us. <sighs> Who could do that but him, but the Son of God? Don't you see, he's a far better helper in our areas of need. Our biggest need is not economics. <laughs> no, it's not vocation. It's not stocks and bonds. It's not physical well-being. It's not marital status. It's nothing like that. Our biggest need is, what are we going to do with the anger of God? Where can we run? Where can we hide? Don't have to. Run to Jesus. He's a far better helper. He appeased the anger of God, which otherwise would have befallen us. That's another reason why he came. Now, folks, because Jesus came as a true human being, and because he truly suffered, he can truly help us in all that which we suffer and are tempted by. And that's what's said in the very next verse, verse 18. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Jesus really suffered. He suffered physically. He suffered emotionally. He suffered spiritually. And in the course of that suffering, you can understand this, there would have been the temptation to do something about it. There would have been the temptation, perhaps, for him to say, is this worth it? 
Why should I stay under this? Are they worth it? So there was a temptation in his suffering. In fact, I want to prove to you that the number one direction of satanic deception, uh, a temptation of the Lord was for him to do something about his suffering. Namely, avoid the cross. I'll prove it to you. Let me read to you Matthew chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. It's one of the temptations with which the Lord was tempted by Satan. It's Matthew chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. Then they were in the wilderness where Satan had said, if you are who you claim to be, turn stones into bread. Now they're in Jerusalem. Then the devil took him into the holy city. That's Jerusalem, the holy city. And he stood him on the pinnacle of the temple. I was there. Many of you who've been to Israel have been there. It's the highest point of the Temple Mount overlooking a valley called the Kidron Valley. Mona, Lord will, forgive me, I'm talking to Mona. Lord willing, we'll be there in June. Lord willing. We're, we're, we're praying the Lord will enable us to go back and do service over there. Anyway, Johnny, remember, we, we, we were there. So the pinnacle is about 450 feet above the Kidron Valley. It's the highest point. The devil took him there to the pinnacle of the temple. He said to him, if you are, oh my, this is what Satan does, by the way. He calls into question what God already declared to be true. Because if you back up to Matthew 3, you will find out uh, that the Father says, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And now Satan says, if, that's what he does to us, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, here's what Satan does, he quotes scripture. Huh? But never accurately, never with application, and never in context. Yeah? It's not enough just to quote scripture. Good night, every politician quotes scripture during an election year. Wrench it out of, I don't know what they're talking about for crying out loud. They should stick to, they shouldn't even stick to politics. They should just, just get a job. Okay. <laughs> so, anyway. So, so see, he quotes scripture here from the Psalms. It is written, he will give his angels charge concerning you, and on their hands they'll bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. Seems like an odd temptation. What's going on over here? Uh, he tells the Lord, you know, they're overlooking the kitchen. Jump, and angels of God, your father will protect you. What's up there? In Malachi chapter three, verse one, it says, when the Messiah returns, he will come suddenly to his temple. Based on that, the Jewish people of the day believed that one of the signs of Messiah's return is a very dramatic appearance in the temple precincts. It was thought by some, he'll appear in the sky and supernaturally suddenly appear in the temple. In keeping with this thinking, Jewish thinking of the day, Satan says to the Lord Jesus, why don't you prove yourself to be the Messiah by just jumping? This will satisfy their expectation of who the Messiah is. Just jump down. 
They'll, they'll fall at your feet. They'll sing Hosanna, just like we just did. They'll sing your praises. They will acknowledge you to be Messiah. And you got nothing to worry about, right? Because your dad said he'll sell, send angels to protect your fall. You know what Satan was saying? Why don't you come into your messianic position and kingdom without the cross? Why don't you avoid the suffering which your father says must precede your glory? Why don't you just jump into glory? So can you see in the things which he suffered, he was tempted, tempted to do what? Avoid the cross. Now folks, I gotta tell you something. What if he did? Where would you and I be? Lost, well said, and without without hope. So he said no. <laughs> he came to do the Father's will, and this is so perplexing to us, but the Father's will was the Son's suffering. He came as the suffering servant first. He'll come again as the Lion of Judah. Buckle up. He will return in a different way, but first he came to fulfill his father's mandate, die for them so that they, dead, can be raised up to new life. And this Jesus withstood the temptation, mastered the temptation to walk away from the cross. Therefore, He's a far better potential helper for those of us who are struggling in areas of temptation. Why? Because he's not just a sympathetic helper, he's a victorious one. Why do you want to rest yourself, put your confidence in someone who's no further down the road than you? I didn't say we shouldn't help each other, but we're all a vapor. We're all flesh. Even the best of us ain't that hot. Why not run to Jesus who demonstrated mastery over the intense temptation? You know, I want to tell you something. Uh, this is how we typically deal with temptation. We give in to it. And as a result, not a one of us knows what it's like to endure temptation without sin. Because at a certain point we just say, that's it, I'm sinning. <laughs> but Jesus did not. He endured the full weight of temptation beyond which you or I have ever experienced because it wasn't within him to sin in response to it. So he endured it, therefore, to the end. Therefore, don't you see, as the text says, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. A second thing we do with temptation, one we give into it, the second we resist it. I recommend that, don't misunderstand. But that's not good enough. You know, this just say no, thing, lots of luck. You're not going to be able to pull it off. This thing, I'm tough, I'll be strong, willpower, willpower. 
Don't you realize how weak you are? Spirit is willing, I know that. But the flesh, weak. So a better approach, rather than giving in to it, rather than facing it head on, resisting it in your own strength, why not cry out to Jesus? Look, you know the text here says he's able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. See the phrase, come to the aid? Maybe you have a translation that says help? Or do you have a Bible that says succor? I don't know how to pronounce it. S-U-C-C. How do you pronounce it? Anyone know? Sucker? <laughs> no, not, not to come. Uh, uh, to, 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 to sucker, as um, our, our famous theologian Kelly McDonald suggests is the correct pronunciation. Uh, it means to help or come to, listen, here's what it means. It's used with reference to uh, a child's cry. Think of yourself as a parent, grandparent. And you hear your child say, help me, help me. What would you do? Whatever it took, Mrs. Lassenbury, you're so right. You'd break your neck to help them. Would you say, not now, I'm watching American Idol? <laughs> would you say you don't deserve it because you didn't eat your, finish your supper? You would drop everything. Help me, Daddy. Help me, Mommy. You would come to the aid. That's the word. Do you know Jesus that way? He's a better helper than all others. You don't ever have to wonder how will he respond to me when at the point of temptation I say, help me. I'm on the verge of giving into it. What will you get from him? I've had enough. Pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. Do you think he'll say, believe in yourself? Do you think he'll say, discover the champion in you? <laughs> he'll say, you've called for my help, and help it shall be. That's what he'll say. He can come to the aid of those who are tempted, for he himself was tempted in that which he suffered. That's how he responds to us, like a child crying out, help me, help me. There he is to help. But this implies something, doesn't it? We have to call out to him for help. <laughs> I challenge you, I challenge me. There's not a person in this room who has ever succumbed to temptation who invited Jesus into the equation. Not one. Come see me if I'm wrong. I'm safe. You and I succumb to the temptation not when we include Jesus in the equation, it's when we leave him out. Then we're on our own, and what do we get? Weakness. I challenge you, I challenge me, at the point of temptation, sexual, gambling, monetary, I don't know what it is. Say, oh, 
God, Lord Jesus, help me or I will succumb to it. Help me. Help I dare you to do it. He's a better helper than all. Read all the self-help books you want. Ten steps to this, that, the other thing. I got one step. Cry out to Jesus at the point of temptation because he's sympathetic and able. Since he had mastery over the temptation which he experienced, he is well positioned to come to the aid of those of us who are tempted. Why not cry out to Jesus? You know, he didn't just come and die. No. He didn't just arrive on a cloud, die, and depart on a cloud. No. He was hungry, and he was thirsty. He was weary, and he at times was sad. He was angry, and he was grieved. At times his heart was broken. Other times he was troubled. He was overcome by present events and even by the anticipation of future events. He sighed, ached, when he saw a lame person. He ached when he saw a, a, a crippled and disabled person. He wept on many occasions when his heart ached. He was misjudged. He was rejected. He, the Son of God, was hated by humankind. He was beaten to a pulp. And then he was finally executed. <laughs> He's a sympathetic high priest. And he won the victory. <laughs> and he'll share it. Run to Jesus. You see, Jesus not only came to save us, this he did, but he also came to sympathize with us. I tell you, he is indeed a better helper than all others. Sometimes we sing this little song, don't worry, I'll save you from it tonight. It just pops into my mind, run to Jesus and live. You know this one? Run to Jesus. I guess I lied to you, huh? Run to Jesus. Run to Jesus. And live. Lord Jesus, put it within us to run to you. Savior from sin. Save us from temptation especially when we suffer, grieve, ache, and are in pain. We're tempted to relieve it outside of your will. You stayed in submission to the will of the Father. You did not sin. You endured the cross for the glory before you. Put it within us to do the same. We are weak, Lord Jesus. Put it within us to remember you, not only as Savior, but as sympathizer, cause us to run to Jesus. This we pray in your mighty name. Amen. Amen.